when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. This podcast contains explicit language. <laughs> Congress is an operating level, operating Thetan level three in an operating Thetan level eight world. So that happened. This week, the Columbia Journalism Review published their lengthy report on what went wrong with Rolling Stone's A Rape on Campus story, citing widespread institutional dysfunction at the magazine that once fired a writer for penning a harsh review of Hootie and the Bluefish. Rolling Stone's response to CGR? Hey, thanks guys, but we don't really feel like we need to change anything. We'll talk about the myriad ways that Rolling Stone is garbage. Meanwhile, Rand Paul has launched his presidential campaign, and while the Kentucky senator seems bent on making many of his previously clear positions more obscure, there's one thing that's become even more clear. Rand Paul is pretty sure he knows more about journalism than the reporters who practice the craft, and he's going to let everyone know. Finally, Congress keeps pick-pick-picking away at the Dodd-Frank bill, which was intended as a regulatory bulwark against banking industry cock-ups too numerous to mention in the introduction to a podcast. But why are some Democrats, who have lately been furiously attempting to brand themselves as the party of the middle class, aiding and abetting the renewed effort to deregulate banks? Spoiler alert, it's because the people who want deregulation have a lot more money and a lot more influence than the middle class does. I'm Jason Lincolns with Huffington Post reporters Laura Bassett and Zach Carter. And here's what happened first. (laughs) Hey, everybody. Welcome back to So That Happened, a weekly show about things that occur in the past at the Huffington Post in Washington, D.C. I'm Jason Lincolns, editor of Eat the Press, and I'm joined today by some extra special guests, beginning with... Laura Bassett. And tell people what you do, Laura. I am the women's rights reporter for the Huffington Post DC politics team. Right. And of course, over here we have Zach Carter, senior political economy reporter. It's big, great. Big made up job title, but it sounds awesome. That's, you know, it does sound awesome. <laughs> it does sound awesome. We're always talking about our job titles here because it's like our obsession. Well, the nice thing about job titles is they can be whatever you want. That's right. I'm going to add global to mine. Yeah. That's a great idea, actually. That's a really good idea. That's a great wow. idea. Global, I mean, put that on there. Digital, that's, right. that's good. I wonder if Ryan would let word. me be like editor-in-chief of the banking report. <laughs> and just, I think I'll do one. All these things are great ideas, okay? so Senior global digital women's reporter. So did anyone, how was everyone's week this week? Anyone have any particular revelations? I had one. Uh, I was really, so I was very sad, um, to have to watch the uh, NCAA tournament championship without uh, my beloved University of Virginia participating. Right. Um, I think we have, we are all three UVA alums today, yeah. right? Yeah, that's oh, right. Oh, wow. That's right. It's an all UVA podcast yeah. today. You know what that Wah-hoo-wah. means? Suck it, Berkeley. Getting trashed at coops afterwards. <laughs> Let's hope so. <laughs> yeah, and the uh, University of Michigan sucks. Right. How about that? 
other public schools that are pretty good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Laura, anything cool this week? Anything cool happened this week? Uh, you know, not that I can think of. I've been I've been neck deep in a t- huge draft that's been taking up all of my time, so I haven't even had time to like. Do you have to go to war? <laughs> yes, <laughs> but only from the neck down. A sort of exactly. War. <laughs> <laughs> only from the neck down. <laughs> neck up. I'm still looking around. Still yeah, really, it's cool. Um, I uh, I had a really nice weekend this weekend. Uh, we'll we'll just say that uh, Adriana Osera, one of the people who helps make this podcast so successful, uh, is going to be competing in the Elite Eight of Washington Improv Theater's uh, Improv Battle Tournament. So congratulations to her. Slow clap for yeah, slow clap Adri- or fast, fast clap. clap. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's I good. Just sped up the slow clap. <laughs> I um so I I I, uh, I, I watched um, I watched Carly Rae Jepsen on SNL this weekend. And I had a revelation about what makes her so endearing. There are two things that make her totally endearing. One is that her hit singles mash up perfectly with old school Nine Inch Nail songs. Like, it's true. There are a lot of very good, like, blended Carly the Ray Jepsen Nine Inch Nail songs. But here's the thing I noticed about her that makes her so endearing. She dances like your aunt. Oh. Like... Laura's aunt is a. Really it's kind of okay. Girl. Maybe my maybe aunt can dance. A it's like belly. it's like a sort of like version of like kind of like white suburban girl dancing, that is not mom because mom is always a little too cool for school and like holding back a little bit and you're like come on mom, and it's not like your zany ass cousin or niece because you know she's just like popping and locking, Charlie XCXing all over the fucking place. Carly Rae Jepsen is like America's like kind of nice aunt. She's just like kind of like yeah. So what does that hat. what does that say about millennials, Jason? Uh, it, I don't know. It says millennials, millennials dance like your aunt. Dance like our aunt, like nobody's watching. Uh, I, I they saw cry me. like no one's listening. They, <laughs> they suffer <laughs> like no one cares. They do. <laughs> they do. They love like they've never been hurt before. <laughs> exactly. I like because they haven't. Every their kid. Millennials live their lives as if they are the character description of a soap opera. <laughs> you know? Am I a millennial? Do I? Count? I'm a dream yes. dressed okay. like a nightmare. I'm 32. I count as a millennial. The year uh, 82 is the cutoff for being born. Oh, yeah. man, I'm 83, so... Suck it, my sister. Yeah, suck it, Gen Xers. You just made I'm it. I'm better than you, and I suffer meaninglessly. Uh, I'm a Gen Xer myself. Yeah, I know. It sucks Fun. to be you. How's Raging Against the Machine doing? The band? <laughs> just, you know, Paul okay, Ryan. Okay, well, um, you know. oh, I mean, if you want to <laughs> know about Rage Against the Machine, uh, Zach De La Rocha directed the uh, video for Run the Jewels... Close your eyes and count to fuck, and it's awesome. Mm. Everyone should watch it. Raging's Machine is also yeah. awesome. They are. <laughs> Let's face it. They are. Well, we're going to rage against another machine. Or actually, we're going to rage against a magazine that maybe has destroyed journalism permanently. So um, <clears throat> this week, I guess it's I guess it's sort of fitting that all of us are UVA people, and, which doesn't mean we're going to like reflexively be like, oh, UVA is awesome. Bad shit never happens there. I think all of us could probably quite the opposite. Yeah, no, quite the opposite. Many, but UVA is awesome. It's I awesome, it. but bad yeah. things do. But happen. bad things do happen to good people. Probably, probably we can all name someone. I mean, we're not going to name them because that's journalistically improper. But we can all name someone who has uh, who's who's been through uh, rape, a sexual assault, or an attempt at one of those things. Mm. Probably someone close to us, and it, it happens. And uh, I think because we know kind of intimately that it happens, and we want it to stop fucking happening. 
we look at, I, I mean, I look at something that the Rolling Stone did uh, completely, not just, not even just botch or biff this story that they published, but it's the story is a complete fabrication. Old, complete fabrication. Yeah. So the, this week, the reason Rolling Stone's back in the news is because of Columbia Journalism Review, who Rolling Stone tasked to do a sort of like thoroughgoing investigation of how they fucked shit up. They came out with their, the CGR came out with their uh, sort of evaluation of Rolling Stones, what they did wrong. And they said it was a failure that was avoidable. That was the quote. And they went on to describe at length, like numerous things that went wrong journalistically in in, in the uh, reporter, Sabrina Ryan Erdely. Sabrina Ruben Erdely. Ruben Erdely's reporting that ranged from not pinning down sources to not treating her source with more skepticism to not treating her own biases with more skepticism, literally to sort of like cherry picking this sort of sensational sounding story out of a, out of an ocean of other stories that may have made the point and been easier to pin down. They also described the how the journalistic process went on at Rolling Stone between her and her editors who seem to have lost all their fucking minds about how to do their job. Yeah. Um, and what's, I think, crazy galling about it is that after the they put out this report that they that they asked CGR to do Rolling Stone was kind of like shrug emoticon mm-hmm. I mean the fuck well Nobody they're getting got sued. fired they're getting sued I mean they're gonna lose a lot of money they're gonna have to pay a lot of money to the frat that was uh, you know, wrongfully uh, you know smeared by the story um, that that case is gonna be so easy to win they're going to settle immediately and uh, you know, so they they will there will be some sort of penalty, and I think their journalistic reputation has really gone to shit. I mean, I thought Rolling Stone um, was a particularly in the Matt Taibbi era. You know, the Matt Taibbi stories. Um, uh, what what's his name? Uh, the the uh, General McChrystal story. Yeah, uh, uh, Michael Hastings. Michael Hastings. I, you know, Rest in peace. Yeah. Uh, Rolling Stone had some really, really top of the line, I thought, uh, magazine reporters, um, and it still does. I mean, Matt, Matt Taibbi's still there. He still does great work, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it, they, they really were on the upswing as like a really top of the line journalistic outfit. And I think this is so damaging um, to them. And, and you know, you understand no, nobody getting fired. Like people like Will Dana, you know, he's been on board when they've done all these good things. So a person's career is not just one fuck up, but this is a pretty big fuck up. Um, and it, I think it really sets back the... The sexual assault, uh, you know, advocacy community by a good, you know, decade or so. I mean, things think now. Anytime someone is a, comes forward uh, with an, a sexual assault, assault allegation, people say, "Well, it could just be like UVA, you know, could just be totally made up." And you, Rolling Stones fueled that. You went down to UVA. I went down there. Yeah, um, and I went to the frat where this allegedly occurred, and all the windows were shattered, and there was glass broken everywhere, and the windows were boarded up, and the the guys in the fraternity were kind of hiding in the house. I knocked on the door, and they were, like, literally cowering in the corner. I saw them, and they wouldn't even answer the door, um, and, and they were terrified. I mean, it, it, it's awful, really, what happened to them. I don't normally sympathize with fraternities for a lot of reasons, but in this case, <laughs> you know, they didn't they didn't hold a woman's leg down and say, uh, grab its motherfucking leg. Like, I mean, the, the story was so graphic and so inflammatory, and uh, people have been literally throwing things at these guys. I mean, violence, you know, at, at, at school. Uh, and I think they have a strong case against Rolling Stone. What did... Uh, uh, the community of people at UVA who are there to help women, uh, mm. w- do they have a reaction to this? I mean, this has to... 
Uh, to speak to what Zach was saying about the potential damage done. Right. Here. Well, something I found interesting was that a college sexual assault activist who I'm familiar with, Alexandra Brodsky, who actually is at Yale, said that Sabrina Rubin Erdely called her months before the Rolling Stone piece came out and asked her for similar stories at Yale. She was kind of looking around for the story that she was going to use, the, the main anecdote. And Brodsky said she handed Erdely numerous regular stories of rape and early passed them all by and said, yeah, none of no, this isn't what I'm looking for. None of these are good enough. And she went and she picked out the most sensationalist story. Uh, and I did reach out to the guys at one in four at UVA and a couple sexual assault activists. And they're frustrated because it's so common, the regular rapes where someone is just passed out drunk and, and someone has sex with them. And, but they, they feel, they feel violated. They feel traumatized. And why is their story sort of not good enough for a Rolling Stone reporter? Yeah, that's crazy to think about. Yeah. That, that there's, they're sitting right there. And, and, and you know that UVA has, has a problem with this. And like, we've known that since, since we were there. I mean, there, there were, uh, in, in 2005, there was a protest because, you know, UVA has this makes a big deal about this honor code thing where you can't lie, steal or cheat, cheat or steal. And you'll be kicked out of school if you if you lie, cheat or ske- steal. And so as part of the sexual assault arbitration, you process, can skeet. Let's get you can clear. skeet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, shooting is fine. Uh, but as part of the sexual assault arbitration process, they, they typically would sort of swear people to secrecy. They, they put a seal on it so that you couldn't talk about what happened. The idea is to protect people who are falsely accused. Um, and so they would go through this whole sexual assault process, and then they, they would at times convict people. You know, men would be convicted of sexual assault, and they would be punished with, you know, a, 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 a suspension or, you know, at sometimes I think, think the, worst, the worst penalty I heard about was, was being sentenced to uh, arbitration where you had to just kind of go talk it out with, you know, where the rapist and the rapee had, had to just sort of settle their differences in, in some sort of counseling session. But if, if, the, if the, the assault survivor went and discussed this in any way and said, look, this guy was convicted of sexual assault and now I have to meet with him every month, she would be violating the honor code. And so she would be subject to expulsion under the honor code. That's crazy. And this was a really big deal. I mean, there were protests on campus when I was there where people showed up just tying gags around their mouths um, to to say that this this is totally unacceptable. And the university said, no, it's not a big deal. You guys are wrong. Um, this is fine. And then I think 2008, 2009, this, this, they, they actually did have to deal with this. This was clearly a, a federal violation. Um, and and the, stu- the other stuff in that Rolling Stone article sounded really familiar to me. The, the way they handle sexual assault claims at UVA does not sound like a particularly good process. It did, it did not seem like things were going well there. Um, Dean Aramo, after this, this story broke, acknowledged that people had come up to her and, and, and confessed that they had committed sexual assault and they were allowed to stay at the university. Um, all of that stuff is now just sort of being swept aside because the Rolling Stones, you know, anecdote was totally false well, let's and, get, and was preventable. Let's get back to the the, the at what happened after CGR put out their story. CGR, I think, um, I think that I think that Rolling Stone kind of had to have it one way or the other. They had to come out and say that the people tasked with the journalism process fucked up. Or that the process that everyone was working within was broken and needed fixing. And what Rolling Stone chose to do was was say neither of those things are true. They're just kind of like, pat CGR on the head. Thanks for all your hard work, but we're not going to fire anybody. Uh, and we're not going to change any process. Our process is awesome. We just have to adhere to it better. Uh, and then Jan Wenner, the, the editor-in-chief or publisher, I don't know what the fuck his title is his title is goddamned idiot um 
basically, basically put that is not as good as senior political economy reporter. Basically, put all the blame on Erdely's original source, calling her a real expert, fabulous storyteller. Like, okay, right? Not just a fabulous, but a real expert, fabulous. And the thing about it is, is that like analyzing the story in retrospect, there's no evidence that Jackie, the source, was an expert fabulist. She was, at best, a run-of-the-mill fabulist. And you know how I know that? Had the reporter done some reporting, it would have been penetrated like that. Well, there were lots of major red flags. Like, Jackie became unresponsive when Erdely started asking her who the lifeguard was, who allegedly, right? And she just, like, wasn't responding to any emails. She says she tried to pull out at the last minute of the story, didn't want to do it. It's like, if, if you have a, I mean, there were, some, there were some red flags with Jackie that were completely ignored. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I was stunned that the, the, the alleged rapist made it into the piece with a pseudonym, okay? And, like, you're supposed to use pseudonyms very sparingly in reporting, only if, as a last recourse. And you have to have a valid reason for doing it. And when a pseudonym is used in a story, it's a contract between that, that, those journalists and the reader. And the contract is specifically this. The reporter knows who the person is. And at least one other person, preferably their editor, can independently corroborate the person exists. This pseudonym got into Rolling Stone... With no one, he was a ghost. It was like a phantom presence in the story that was propped up by a journalistic canard. And, and it was it was like a shocking, stupid thing for anyone to do. And if, if Rolling Stone really thinks that their processes and people are completely first-rate and competent, no. I'm, I have news for you. That's incorrect. Well, my question is, what was the point of this melodramatic, we're going to have the Columbia Journalism Review come in and investigate us, and then they do, and then they say, wow, you guys royally fucked up everything in every possible way, and then Rolling Stone does nothing. What was So what was the point? I, they're, they're just courting a lawsuit, basically. I mean, yeah. they retracted their story. and They got, didn't apologize they had for fraternity. No. I mean, I, I think the CJR report is like a lawsuit on a platter. I think uh, that... I think that Rolling Stone by well and Jan Wenner, idiot, for doing what he's done in the wake of this. Uh, journalism taking a lot of hits. Everyone can name a few of their favorites: Jason Blair, mm. uh, Judith Miller. <laughs> She's got um, a new book out actually. Right, right. National Review is running uh, running wild. It'll be. It. I was really actually awesome by Judith Miller. Um, and, and so I know I know that talking to people after the ever after we realized that Rolling Stone had faffed up the story, talking to people in this office, like I think there was you know pretty clear sort of generalized discontent with the idea with the idea that this happened. So many hardworking people with good reputations this happened to, and I think people around here in this office were kind of like you know it's just a reminder that that you know this kind of complacency could creep into any of our work if we're not careful. Um, and I think that Rolling Stone was you know given the opportunity to take responsibility and help to sort of maintain the idea that journalism is a reputable enterprise. And they passed on it. They passed on it. They said, eh, not, not our responsibility. You know, so they should actually, Rolling Stone actually should be cast out by decent, reputable journalists because they have refused to help the industry get better. They've pointedly shrugged and... And, and forsaken their responsibility. 
reputable journalists should cast out Rolling Stone. Okay, so we're going to move on to our next topic. Um, and this is a topic that, um, you know, 2016, this week was uh, the week that Rand Paul uh, decided to take on the washing machine, as I call it. The washing <laughs> machine. Here's, here's something that I think people started to notice about Rand Paul today, is that, or, or this week, is that when a reporter asks him a question, rather than answer the question, we, we first get uh, a, a lecture from the Rand Paul School of Journalism. You know, journalism schools, like, you pay a lot of money for very little. And so I appreciate the fact that Rand Paul doesn't charge right. for his journalism it's a school. public service. I do feel like I'm getting what, it, what I paid for, mm. some bullshit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but let's talk about what happened to Savannah Guthrie. Oh, it's so cringeworthy. It was so cringeworthy. Yeah, um, Savannah was asking really uh, hard-hitting, good questions to Rand Paul, and he did not like that. And so he said, uh, I believe this is a quote, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. Listen. Uh, here is how to ask questions. That's, he's still one of Romney's. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Best line. <laughs> that um, and the one about the trees being just the right height. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. That's uh, I think he shushed her mul multiple times. He told her she was editorializing. And then even after she sort of agreed with his premise and asked him a question the way that he had instructed her to ask him a question, he still didn't like it and uh, continued to scold her on what journalism should look like. Before we go through a litany of things you say I've changed on, why don't you ask me a question? Have I changed my opinion? Have you that changed would be your sort opinion? Of a better way to approach an interview. Okay. No, no. Is Iran well, I mean, still not a threat? No, 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 no. Listen, you've editorialized. Let me answer a question. You okay. ask a question. And, and, and she was just asking him questions about his, let's say, very flexible uh, foreign policy record, right? Like he's at times come across as being very non-interventionist, uh, very skeptical about the, the effectiveness of the use of American military force abroad. And then at other times, he's come across as very hawkish and very, very aggressive uh, and sort of in line with where the Republican Party kind of is at the, at the moment. Um, and she was just asking him to, to clarify, like, where are you? 
And Which he is was, fair. And he was acting like that was editorializing. Uh, editorializing. That's not, not editorial. Editorializing is this. Rand Paul, your foreign policy is a fucking incoherent joke. That's editorializing. Yeah, <laughs> po- yeah. Pointing out that it has changed over time is not editorializing. That's just... I noticed this. Can you explain this thing I noticed? You can insist. You can insist it didn't happen, but, but I think that when we get into debates, Rand Paul, when he, when he pursues his opponents, is probably going to go after them for their inconsistency because he wants to present himself as a consistent figure. But he's got his own problems. Later yesterday, he had an interview with an AP reporter uh, who asked him about his position on abortion, which which is an interesting question because he's supposed to be a libertarian and libertarians tend to say, get government out of your lives. Why, you know, they tend to be a little bit more liberal on abortion. Rand Paul is not. And so the, the AP reporter asked him to clarify whether he thinks women who've been raped should be able to get an abortion. And he gave a five minute answer kind of saying, I don't want to get into the details of that. Like, I don't think the details are important. Yada, yada, yada. Went on and on and on. And then the AP reporter said, but what about rape and incest exceptions? Do you support those? And he said, just put in my five minute answer. Leaves and exemptions for life. Right. I would I would report exactly the way I said it. Sometimes you don't think putting it in neat categories is a mistake. So I gave you about a five minute answer. Put my five minute answer. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't take requests, dude. <laughs> this is a WAV in the right. morning. No, no. So the no, reporter no, no. put in his quote, just put in my five minute answer, which I thought was, <laughs> was amazing. Which I thought was amazing on AP's part. That is amazing. Uh, that, yeah. is, that is amazing. And then and then I think like going into the evening, Wolf Blitzer asked him basically is like, why are you so dickish to female reporters? And the amazing thing is Rand Paul's like, oh, Wolf, I think I've been a dick to everybody. You know, I think I've been uh, universally short-tempered and testy with both male and female reporters. I'll own up to that. <laughs> which is amazing. That's good. Which is amazing. That's a great answer. <laughs> I, don't, I don't discriminate. I'm, I'm rude to everyone. My friend, my friend uh, Autumn Marie Cox, tweeted something to the effect that it's like, I guess... I, I guess it's cool to live in a country where being accused of misogyny is so damning that you'd rather be thought of as someone who's even more of an asshole. <laughs> Just a general interest like, jerk. Hold on. I am no dear misogynist. Everyone, I think everyone should go to hell. Yeah. Fuck everybody. <laughs> Fuck dogs. <laughs> Ex- cat. Except Wolf Blitzer, because he was super <laughs> nice to Wolf Blitzer. He was, he was like, oh, and Wolf Blitzer was asking him the same question that Savannah Guthrie was asking him, except this time he was like, oh, Wolfie, yeah. this is so us. If Rand Paul, if Rand Paul had been like a next level <laughs> politician, <laughs> if Rand Paul had just like gone next level, what he would have should have done is like completely like tear Wolf Blitzer's body apart. You know, and been like a super mega dick to him. Just but, to prove his point. But instead he was like, oh, you're right, Wolf. So here's what infuri- infuriates me about this whole thing is that, like, you kind of know where Rand Paul's going to be on most domestic policy stuff, right? Like, he basically wants to dismantle everything the federal government does. Um, okay, you know, a lot of what the federal government does is lame, so we could have an interesting debate over that. Where, but where I think it's really interesting for the GOP field is on the foreign policy side. The fact that he has been... Uh, at times, very much at odds with where sort of the the hawkish donor base of the GOP uh, seems to be at the moment. Um, 
meant that we could have had a really interesting debate over foreign policy in the 2016 uh, primaries, and we could have had a really, really serious, sh- uh, you know, uh, showdown over what what Republicans, what conservatism means abroad. Does it mean, you know, the, the Iraq War and neoconservatism and preemptive strikes and being the, the toughest guy on the block, or does it mean more aggressive diplomacy efforts? Um, and I don't think we're going to have that. I think I think it's pretty clear. Rand Paul is just going going. To the, to the hawkish camp and then trying to avoid any appearance of any any sort of uh, inconsistency on that and, and shutting down apparently men and women alike when they right. uh, when they challenge I don't, him. I don't know if he's necessarily like going to join the hawk camp, but he's certainly trying to put Vaseline over the lens on his whole previous career. You know, he's, he's said some things in the past, pretty filleting things about Dick Cheney and given the opportunity by Sean Hannity, I think it was Sean Hannity, to talk about that. He was he demurred and said, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that mean stuff about Dick Cheney. So I don't know if we're going to get that debate you want, because right now, Rand Paul is trying to be, you know, everything to everybody. And I think it's probably cynically the right strategy. He's got an enormous amount of people super invested in him from what he's done in the past. And now he's kind of like uh, moving on from that. And like those people, the tendency of people, you know, the chains of habit are light until they become, I don't know what the fucking saying is, become be, 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 until, until they become not light anymore. So a lot of people who have like become super invested in Rand Paul probably be like, oh, you know what, he's kind of disappointing me, but uh, I'm not going to vote for these other guys. I got no place to go. I guess I'll vote for Rand Paul and see how it goes. Like cynically speaking, that's a good strategy. Yeah, I, I what I'm curious to see is Rand Paul um, and his sort of Rand-splaining attitude in a debate with Hillary Clinton. I want to see how that goes over. But, you know, she, she has foreign policy issues, too, right? I mean, I think she's she's much more conservative than where most of the Democratic base is on foreign policy. Uh, she's been far more hawkish than President Obama has been. She's cr- openly criticized the withdrawal from Iraq um, in, in that interview with Christian uh, Amanpour a few months mm-hmm. ago. Um, these are not things that like a democratic electorate gets excited about on on foreign policy uh, on the foreign policy front, and yet she's not really going to have a challenger. So you're not going to have interesting debates on the democratic side. Um, that that you know that foreign policy debate about what what it means to be a democrat in the 21st century a- abroad uh, is is going to have to wait until the uh, the general election debates. Do you look forward to interviewing Rand Paul, Laura? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> No, I was thinking about that yesterday. I was like, how is this only day two of his campaign? Like by November 2016, if he's this annoyed with the media already, he's just going to be like outside of 30 Rock, just like tossing Molotov cocktails. Like he (laughs) is not going to make it if this is how he feels on like day one. We're stuck with him. He's one of us is locked in here with the other one. We're going to find out probably in a couple. Like, you're right, Laura. It's like day two and he's already starting to like crack at the edges. Yeah, really? Like this. He he could he could uh, he could be, you know, Tyler Durden by the end of this. We just have to. I want his campaign slogan to be put in my five minute answer. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that line so much. I don't know why it gets me. So good. (laughs) Not stand with Rand. Rand Paul, put in my five minute answer. (laughs) Hey there, listener of this podcast. I've got a quick little thing I'd love to chat with you about. Are you a regular So That Happened listener? Well, let us know. Send me an electronic communication with your electronic communicating devices at so that happened at HuffingtonPost.com. 
Tell us what you think of the show, what we're messing up, and who you'd like to hear more from or more about. Okay, back to the program. So we're going to move on now to a super cool bank dork topic. And Laura. Thank goodness. Laura looking terrified. Ooh, bank. I'm a little terrified too. Yeah. I feel terrified. pretty comfortable, you guys. <laughs> yeah, for What's some, the big deal? <laughs> for some reason, Zach feels comfortable talking about banks. You, but you're, you've been doing a good job lately because, because one thing that my wife is just like, I don't want to talk about it. Is anything having to do with banks? She's just like, I read a story. I, I, I listen to the news and like I hear the word Goldman Sachs. And I'm just like, nah, fuck this board. You know, she like trusts me to like read all the books. <laughs> <laughs> but, you take care of the bank shit, babe. And I'm just like, oh, you really. Credit default swaps. And she's like, uh, I'm sure they're important, but I can't, I can't deal. But, but you're doing a good job. So, okay, what's going on this week in the world of banking deregulation? So it's, it's, it actually hasn't happened this week. It happened a couple of weeks ago. Um, oh wait, but, so this should have been on an earlier podcast. Well, the saying. thing is, nobody noticed at the time, including myself. There were other things happening. There were presidential elections tisk, occurring. Tisk, yeah. tisk. Um, it, it's funny because since December. The Democratic Party has made this big, very public push saying, we don't support all of these Wall Street giveaways. We don't want to be associated as the party of helping predatory lenders. We want to be standing up for the middle class, not the financial establishment. We've been very clear about that. Nancy Pelosi has whipped members. They have voted down bills that were attempting to chip away at the Volcker rule. Um, it, it's been a really big part of the, of the party's overall messaging platform. But on the House Financial Services Committee, which is the banking committee for you know, the house, uh, <laughs> they have, I don't know Could why you be more specific. It's always funny. Financial <laughs> services are like, it's like, like banking became a dirty word. It's sort of like how in democratic politics, being a liberal became like nasty in the early nineties. So you right. had to become like something else. Aggressive. Yes. <laughs> Full uh, communist. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you and, you and Jesse Myerson, man. Love <laughs> um, so, uh, so they started calling it financial services. Anyway. Um, they pushed through a whole bunch of bills, and they're Republican bills that chip away at pieces of Dodd-Frank. And it's not surprising that Republicans would be able to pass these bills. What is surprising is that Maxine Waters, the ranking member, uh, the, the top Democrat on that panel, forced a lot of these to go to an actual vote so they couldn't just fly through and the, the votes would be tallied. What's not great for Maxine Waters is that a ton of Democrats voted with Republicans on these bills. And I, I just want to focus on one here. It's uh, it's the very sexily titled H.R. 650. Uh, <laughs> I'm already <laughs> titillating. Yeah, it's yeah. arousing. It is about mobile home lending. H.R. 650. So, so mobile home. Call today. Yeah, for your mobile home ripoff. Um, so mobile homes are not going to crash the economy. That They just aren't a big enough sector. There's not going to be a financial crisis because of predatory mobile home lending. But there's a great investigation that just came out from the Center for Public Integrity, uh, a good independent journalism outfit, uh, that shows that the mobile home industry is basically Warren Buffett's baby. Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett control both the companies that, that make the houses – Right, Clayton Homes, they actually make the mobile homes, and also the lenders that, that give you the loans to buy the land in the mobile home. And what is happening in the financial services committee is that a lot of these loans are very high interest, that, that, according to the CPI report, uh, upwards of 20% on, on your, your interest rate for, for these loans. And you know, to put things in perspective, it's 4%. 4% is the interest on like a mortgage right now. That's, you know, if, if you pay five or six, you're getting kind of a raw deal. 20% is hugely expensive loans. And they're going to people who are poor, 
rich people don't buy mobile homes. And there was this problem that happened a few years ago. Not even for their mobile home Thunderdomes. Right, right. They pit poor people <laughs> against each other. Right, and make them, yeah, make them fight to the death. Um, there's this problem a few years ago. It was called subprime lending. And subprime lending, if you couldn't tell from the name, where it's subprime means not as good, less than prime, I'm, shitty loan. Subprime I'm, lending, the, the whole philosophy here was that you would charge poor people more money for something. And this would be a sustainable enterprise. And surprise, it's not a sustainable enterprise because poor people don't have any money. So when you charge them more money for stuff, they run out and it's a problem. So it's the same problem in mobile home lending. Um, and they're subject now, thanks to Dodd-Frank, to a whole lot of anti-predatory lending standards. You get certain rights as a homeowner when you buy a house that if, you know, if the lender violates the agreement, you can force them to take back the mortgage. You, you, know, you don't have to pay off this, this terrible loan. There are only so many points and fees they can charge you when you take out the house. Um, and and there, are, there are limits on the interest rate that, that can be charged, effective limits. Uh, it gets complicated. But Democrats and Republicans are now voting to just exempt mobile home lending from a lot of those restrictions in Dodd-Frank. But it's, why? Is there a huge, like, mobile home predator lobby? Yes, and, okay. it's, and it's basically yeah, all Warren Buffett. Answer. That's the thing. It's basically all Warren Buffett. He, he runs that industry. He, he, he runs the two biggest mobile home lending outfits uh, and, and Clayton Homes, which is the biggest mobile home construction company. So every step of the process, process is like Warren Buffett's empire. And so they, they have these, like, these, these interest groups that are like, uh, you know, the, the mobile, the manufactured housing association and, and things like that, um, that are basically just, you know, made up of different Warren Buffett subsidiaries who, who come together and war and, and lobby on behalf of Warren Buffett. And Democrats like Warren Buffett, right? Because in, in the he big... He flatters them all the time. I think he said this week that he was like, I'm for Hillary, right? That, uh, that, wouldn't surprise me. That's a thing that happened. He, he likes taxing rich people, right? He says the capital gains tax rate is too low. He wants more taxes. Mm -hmm. So Democrats like that because he's like not insane. But Warren Buffett has persistently invested in a lot of really dubious financial enterprises, including the credit rating agencies at the heart of the 2008 financial crisis. And obviously making a big buy on Goldman Sachs at the heart of the crisis, which he's since acknowledged was a buy that he made because he thought the government would bail it out. And they would never, you know, he, there was no downside for him because Goldman would never be allowed to go under by the federal government. That doesn't mean that he's stupid. It means he's very smart. He knows exactly what he's doing. Um, but that's exactly the kind of activity that I think people should be skeptical about. That's that's not what you want. You don't want to see policymaking uh, being done in that way. And and I, I, I find it particularly offensive on the mobile home side because it's just like super subprime lending. It's just like subprime lending, but even worse. And Democrats are, are, are getting involved in this. Are there consequences for Democrats for doing this? Because they have gone out of their way. Well, I mean, let's face it. They've historically attempted to brand themselves as the party of the little... Well, everyone brands themselves as the party of the little guy, but the mm -hmm. Democrats, like... Really they actually insisted. did social security. They mean it. They made social yes, security they made and Medicare. Social security. Uh, but obviously, obviously, these kind of actions cut broadly against that. So are there consequences to be faced for that? It's really interesting. So, you know, last year we spent a lot of time reporting on Jim Himes, who is a uh, one of the co-chairs of the New Democrat Coalition, sort of the we're Democrats on everything except for economic policy is what, what the New Democratic right. uh, mantra is. And and Gwen Moore, who's a pretty hardcore progressive on like everything. And they had both gotten involved in a lot of these, these sort of Dodd-Frank rollbacks. Neither of them 
would even 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 Jim Himes and Gwen Moore would not vote for this mobile home bill. Um, and My instead, God. it's it, but but about half of Democrats on the financial services panel did. Kristen Cinema from Arizona, who's a serial uh, you know deregulator on this stuff. Um, Terry Sewell from Alabama, again a serial deregula- deregulator. Greg Meeks from New York. Um, John Delaney, John Carney. Um, but a lot of the people. What, what's weird is that there there is this sort of hardcore deregulator caucus that is still that is still there. But parts parts of it are still moving away. But when you have bill after bill after bill getting a dozen or so Democratic votes, that makes it more likely to go to the floor. It makes it more likely for people on the floor to say, look, this is not controversial. All these it's, Democrats voted for it. It can't be that bad. Right. Uh, and then it makes it easier to <clears throat> slip into a funding bill at the end of the year. It is kind of like uh, it, it is. It always mystifies me that people play along and, and get in, invest in the scam. But I feel that so often when Beltway reporters talk about bills and Beltway pundits talk about bills, they become kind of really enamored of the fact that a bill can be called bipartisan. You know, when it attracts votes from both parties, it's like, oh, you know, there's there's this there's this saying that's just like, well, a bill that's pissing something that pisses everybody off must be good. It's like, no, no. The Holocaust pissed everybody off. That was bad. That was yeah. bad. That was bad. And I think people, I think like people don't analyze the bill for what it is and what it does. They're just like, well, you know, look, it's not controversial. Everyone from both parties voted for it. Most of the time, if that's happening and we're not naming a post office, something fucked up's going on. Otherwise, though, everything's fine, and uh, we're going to have a great presidential election in 2016, and have uh, you know, really awesome, non-corrupt uh, republic. Years to come. <laughs> Here's to that, guys. Cheers. Ooh. All right. Well, um, all right. You guys, thanks for, for joining today. Laura, this is your first time, right? This was my first time. Yes. Yes. First podcast ever. Yes. You're a queen. That's awesome. So, folks, I we thought had, you were really good. I'll come in and uh, throw out some non sequiturs anytime. That's right. That's right. Here we go. All right. So, we had Laura Bassett, HuffPost uh, politics reporter and, and women's rights. Global enthusiast, global women's, <laughs> global digital women's rights thought leader, yes. Laura Bassett. You can follow her on Twitter at, at L E Bassett, which is B A S S E T T, like the furniture, right? And not like the Laura Bassett who, with a one T, who is a, who is a footballer in in the English women's Premier League for Notts County. Uh, we were here, also here, Zach Carter. You, got, you you told me you guys tweet together, so we that's do. nice. It's good you have a friends. Yeah. Um, we had Zach Carter, senior political economy reporter. You can follow him at, at Zach D. Carter. Zach spelled Z-A-C-H. As in Zach. D as in D. Carter as in Jimmy. You can follow me at Deceiver, which is D-C-E-I-V-E-R. It's a pun. Get it? Yeah. Get it? He's from Thanks. D.C. and he's a liar. Thanks for being here, you guys. Thanks for having us. I miss you guys already. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Thanks, Bassett. That's my favorite thing. That was week. very special. Always <laughs> <laughs> fun. Thanks for having me, guys. So that's what happened this week. This podcast was produced and edited by Ibrahim Balki with technical direction from Brad Shannon and assistance from Christine Canetta and Adriana Ucero. I'm Jason Lincolns. This week, we were joined by HuffPost reporters Laura Bassett and Zach Carter. So That Happened is available on iTunes. Please check us out in the iTunes store for the Huffington Post's whole family of podcasts. Subscribe to them. Tell your friends. 
If there's something you'd like to hear us talk about, please send an email to so that happened at huffingtonpost.com. As always, thank you very much for listening, and we miss you already. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.